This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, September 18th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, traffic is growing in the region, which means a growing need for public transit. There will be a time to where traffic will be so dense and trying to get point A to point B in your own vehicle is going to be challenging. We really need to invest now and to build out uh, an on-road, on-street bus system. Plus, a look back at a week of discussion about freedom of information in Arkansas. Nobody's going to go back and you know catch one of these flights in action. And unless she's somehow worried about somebody, I guess, having like a surface-to-air missile to shoot down her plane, I don't see how knowing who was on a plane in the past could put anybody's life in danger. And a decade-long Arkansas criminal case with three trials and a notorious confession. It's not difficult for him or anyone else to find out specifics of any particular crime. They can be supplied to him. First, the news from NPR. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville invites guests to discover American art, architecture, and 120 acres of Ozark nature. Visitors can also enjoy family activities and programs and a variety of food and drink experiences. General admission is always open to the public. More information at crystalbridges.org. Washington Regional's Her Health Clinic is committed to empowering all women by giving them the care and resources they need to take control of their own health. Gynecology services, prenatal care, childbirth, infertility treatments, and more available at Her Health Clinic, located in Washington Regional's Women and Infant Center in Fayetteville. WRegional.com slash HerHealth to learn more. It's Monday, September 18th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Coming up, last week's special session of the Arkansas Legislature included a flurry of discussions surrounding the state's Freedom of Information Act laws. We start our show with public transportation. With a reported 36 people per day moving to northwest Arkansas, traffic in the region is getting more congested, and public transit is becoming more of a necessity. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth hopped on the bus to get a better understanding of how people are getting around in the region. It's a warm September afternoon in Fayetteville, and I'm waiting at the bus stop near the Fayetteville Public Library. When the white and royal blue Ozark Regional Transit bus stops, I wait for the electric doors to whoosh open and then hop on the bus. It's relatively empty at first, just me and one other passenger as we make our way past the Fayetteville Square and on to College Avenue. Jeff Hatley is the Communications Director for Ozark Regional Transit, or ORT, and he says ridership has steadily been going up. And we're almost back to our record numbers we had back in 2016, but in 2016 we had more routes going too, so we're doing more with less. For the month of August, he says the number of daily passengers hit 1,166, which he says are above pre-pandemic ridership averages. And ORT has been serving the region since 1974 with the help of a federal grant to give rural communities access to transit services. And so they started um, doing rural trips from Fayetteville to Elkins and back a couple times a day. And a lot of people rode it, when I say a lot, 12 people. You know, This is back in the mid-70s. And Hatley says a lot has changed since that first route. They now operate 13 regular bus routes with 248 stops. Hatley says one of the biggest challenges was reestablishing service after a fire at their headquarters in 2017 destroyed 20 buses. 
uh, lost 85% of our um, larger fleet. We still had the minivans and all, but uh, our bread and butter is always going to be the larger buses carrying, you know, 15, 20 people at a time. Eventually, though, they secured a $3.6 million federal grant that allowed them to buy 12 new buses branded to look uniform. Hatley says that has been a huge help in raising ORT's profile and attracting some new riders. I hear people all the time, oh, I see your buses everywhere. You know, we don't have any more, any more routes now than we did back during the fire. But they look like city buses, and they've got a brand, and they've got a color scheme, and they're, you know, everything is consistent like a, like a bona fide <laughs> transit system, yeah. believe it or not. So, um, so it's actually been a blessing. ORT is one of only two public transit systems in northwest Arkansas and the only one that serves multiple cities. They operate in Fayetteville, Rogers, Springdale, and Bentonville. Razorback Transit is the other system. So Razorback Transit is a federally funded 5307 large urbanized area formula uh, public transit uh, agency. We are facilitated by the university. In, in other words, the university uh, applied for the grants and, and operates the service according to Federal Transit Administration guidelines. Adam Waddell is the director of Razorback Transit at the University of Arkansas. And he says while the bus system is operated by the University of Arkansas, it's not just for university students. We're public transit, just like any other public transit agency that you may run across. And, and truth be known, because of our population, you know, we're, we're deemed to be, quote unquote, large urban. That's the same funding formula that New York, Dallas, Chicago, Kansas City, we're in that exact same funding formula. We're public transit. We're available and open to anybody. Razorback Transit operates 19 routes throughout Fayetteville. Both Razorback Transit and ORT are free. ORT stopped requiring bus fares in 2020 thanks to a grant from the Walmart Family Foundation. Razorback Transit uses a mix of funding from federal and local grants as well as the state's rental car tax. Uh, The city of Fayetteville uh, provides us uh, an amount of funding for the services that we provide. And then the largest funder for us is the University of Arkansas. Uh, Students do pay a transportation fee uh, in their course credit hours that it goes towards um, their transit services. Uh, And then there's other funding from the University of Arkansas. Waddell says ridership for transit ebbs and flows with each semester, but he says the interest is always there. For the month of August, the university reported over 101,000 riders. So while public transit services do exist in the region, navigating that web of bus routes and getting to and from the bus stop can still be complicated. I think most of your listeners probably recognize that when they drive up and down some of our major roadways, there's a lack of uh, sidewalks, uh, lack of bus stops with shelters. Tim Conklin is the director of the Northwest Arkansas Regional Planning Commission. Earlier this year, the group landed a grant from the U.S. Department of Transportation for $180,000 to improve bus stops in Fayetteville, Springdale, and Rogers. Conklin says the region is growing, which means the need for better public transit is growing too. As a region, as we continue to add 100000 people per decade for the last three decades. I think we all understand that we do need to be improving 
our roadways to have more infrastructure that allows people to walk, that allows people to bike, and more development patterns and land uses that uh, support transit. We need to make sure our infrastructure is in place and our city need to make sure that we are becoming transit ready over the next 25 years as we approach a million population. And Jeff Hatley says one way to improve the public transit system is for more people to take the bus. He says one of the biggest barriers he sees in this region is fear. Um, not only is it a fear factor of you know what element is on there, the other fear factor is, well, I don't know how to use it, and the last thing I want is to try it and not be able to find my way back. But familiarity, I think, is the biggest thing to overcome. And he says ORT is trying to help familiarize people with their service through a new on-demand application. In 2022, they began offering a ride-hailing service similar to Uber or Lyft that lets riders within ORT's service area schedule a pickup and drop-off completely free. Hatley says this bumps the ridership up by nearly 200%. The on-demand transit is very, very convenient. Uh, people love it. Ridership has gone through the roof on that thing, but it's not our bread and butter. Our bread and butter is moving 20, 25, 30 people at a time down major thoroughfares to major destinations, and major destinations would be like medical facilities, higher educational facilities, um, work facilities, that type of thing. Uh, and so major corridors still um, uh, using fixed route, moving multiples of people, but that can be fed through the on-demand transit so people the vans can go out to different uh, neighborhoods and pick up people and take them to that transfer station to a fixed route system to get them to their final destination. That's what we envision uh, everything going. But he says the bus system isn't quite to that level yet. There are still gaps in service hours and a lot of areas in the region that the bus system just can't cover yet because of infrastructure, like the Northwest Arkansas National Airport, for example. But Adam Waddell says as the region grows, the need for public transit is going to become more apparent. There will be a time to where traffic will be so dense and trying to get point A to point B in your own vehicle is going to be challenging. We really need to invest now and to build out uh, an on-road, on-street bus system to make those other high-density high public transit options be truly viable and, and, and add benefit to the community. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. All right, from buses to trains now, plans for bringing back passenger rail service to northwest Arkansas continue. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. Couples and families nostalgic for passenger rail travel this morning board the historic Arkansas and Missouri excursion train in Springdale to experience an era gone by. Car 109 all aboard! Conductor Nick Walker guides passengers aboard the vintage train. It departs southbound towards the Boston Mountains, final destination Van Buren. In the early 20th century, trains crisscrossed Arkansas, hauling timber, minerals, produce, and lots of people. Laying thousands of miles of track took decades of planning legislation and investors. Today, only a few dozen rail lines remain in Arkansas, used to transport freight. 
Richard Billingsley is founder and president of NWA Go, a citizens group that promotes green mass transit. He spends his time lobbying municipal, state, and federal lawmakers to encourage a revival of passenger rail on the Ozarks. And, you know, the, the general consensus I hear from state or from federal representatives, anything, is we didn't know people back home were interested in that. Billingsley says public pressure, strategic planning, plus state and federal funding could one day make commuter rail in northwest Arkansas a reality. I rode the uh, Washington, D.C. metro light rail system. It was very fast. It covered a lot of distance very quickly. It's built above ground and... I would love to see that here. Billingsley has also pitched development of interstate high-speed rail known as bullet trains, popular in Europe and Japan, to the Arkansas Department of Transportation's Railroad Coordination Section, directed by Greg Nation. We only have one passenger rail route, and that is the Texas Eagle, which goes from the northeast part of the state uh, down through Texarkana. And the Texas Eagle runs from Chicago down to San Antonio. Arkansas is just kind of a passing through. The Texas Eagle is operated by Amtrak. Ridership fluctuates, Nation says, and has never been a popular mode of transportation due to only two trains scheduled per day in Arkansas with departures in the middle of the night. But a high-speed rail spur extending to and from northwest Arkansas could accelerate ridership. It is possible, and it is something that will be in our state rail plan to evaluate because uh, with anything of this nature and magnitude, you'll, you'll need to have it identified in a plan first. Nations referring to the 2015 Arkansas Rail Plan, a comprehensive 300-page document that details the function, inventory, performance, and financing of the state's 2,600 miles of rail lines, all privately owned. A high-speed passenger rail study on a route extending from Little Rock to Memphis was published in 2019. The 2015 state rail plan is currently being updated. Nation's been hosting public meetings around the state and will soon post a digital survey online. So we'll take a lot less sitting around with an engineering mindset and taking in what the general public would like to see and what they think. That way we can come with a better answer. Nation says the biggest hurdle is building passenger rail from Little Rock to northwest Arkansas. I've heard people talk about, well, we could use existing rail, things of that nature, uh, which is a wonderful idea and definitely save money. But you got to bring that rail up to speed. you got to bring all those crossings up to speed. And I think some people don't really realize the incredible amount of economic investment that would take. Nation says updating the new state rail plan expected to be complete early next year will spur communication across the state about ways to link Arkansas's population centers via high-speed passenger rail with interconnections to local commuter light rail. The initial expense is is extensive, you know, uh, just updating a railroad crossing at a minimum $300,000. So you're looking at five to $700 million just to construct the rail. So we've got to find those funding sources that are willing to invest into that. Tim Conklin, the executive director of the Northwest Arkansas Regional Planning Commission, recently hosted a passenger rail plan meeting to gather both public and official comment to update previous outdated planning. In 2014, we did have a what's called an alternative analysis where we had a consultant come into Northwest Arkansas to specifically look at light rail along I-49, bus rapid transit along the 71B corridor, so the 30-plus mile corridor from Fayetteville, Springdale, Rogers, 
Bentonville, and then also looked at commuter rail utilizing the corridor for the Arkansas and Missouri Railroad. Subsequent planning failed, he says, but commuter traffic congestion and demand for zero carbon mass rail transit is expected to attract future Federal Transit Administration funding for urban districts that can prove measurable rail ridership in Arkansas. As we move into the future, it's very important that we have a mix of land uses, we have population densities, employment densities, that support alternative transportation choices, mobility choices for everybody. That includes things like mass bus transit, rental e-bikes and scooters to act as secondary public conveyance for rail passengers to make it to their final destination. Conklin says Northwest Arkansas's population will reach one million within two decades. We just all need to work together to make sure that we're becoming transit ready. Mass rail and bus transit ready. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Ahead on our show, Prior Center Archives helped tell the story of a murder in Arkansas. They required three trials, eight years, and a bizarre confession of a notorious serial killer. Lucas uh, obviously is, has a warped man, and apparently he's trying to, quote, take credit for as many murders as he can. The details in this week's collection of Prior Center Archives. That's in about six minutes on today's Ozarks at Large. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. During last week's special session of the Arkansas legislature, lawmakers passed new cuts to the state's personal income tax and corporate tax rate. In an interview with KARK Channel 4's Capital View, Republican State President Bart Hester of Cave Springs said the tax cuts will go into effect in January of next year. He said a new one-time personal income tax credit will go into effect this year. But we have some um, some immediate tax relief. Uh, $150 matters to working families uh, and the people of Arkansas. We're happy to send it back to them. Lawmakers approved lowering the top income tax rate from 4.7% to 4.4%. The corporate income tax rate will be lowered from 5.1% to 4.8%. The waters of Oklahoma and Arkansas Whitewater Park, or WOCA, officially opened this weekend in Watts, Oklahoma. Ozarks at Large's Jack Travis has more. The waters of Oklahoma and Arkansas, or Woka Whitewater Park, is located just past the Oklahoma and Arkansas border, adjacent to the Illinois River. Inside the gates, a 1,200-foot artificial river surges, creating adjustable rapids suited for every level of whitewater expertise. Woka is a product of a partnership between the Grand River Dam Authority, the City of Siloam Springs, and the Walton Family Foundation. Grand River Dam Authority spokesperson Justin Alberti says it's the perfect place for anyone to come learn about whitewater paddle sports, even if they just want to watch from the shore. Lower drops down here, drops towards the end for people whose, whose skill sets aren't quite as high. But it's just going to be a great place to come just be a spectator as well, just to watch people go through the course. It's going to be great. But we do encourage you, before you come out, to visit the, the website, visitwoka.com, watch some of the videos, get some of the background, background information but really even your novice floaters, all the way up to your expert floaters, there's going to be something for them here at, at WOCA. The park is many years in the making. The $33 million project broke ground three years ago. Alberti says a place like a whitewater park involves many moving pieces and equally as many stakeholders' involvement. 
Well, you know, when you when you do a project like this, to have the 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 beauty we have behind us and everything we have going here, it just takes time to to get all the pieces together and you know to, to finalize the construction and to and to all the permitting and stuff required to make it a possible to make it a reality. So we're very pleased. Yes, it's been a, a long timeline, but um, I think it's going to be worth it, and I think people will see that when they come out and visit. Springdale resident and former president of the Arkansas Canoe Club's Northwest Chapter, Tracy McFedridge, was in attendance at WOCA last Friday. McFedridge says she's been anxiously waiting for the park to open. I'm so excited. <laughs> it, is, it is so great for the paddling community, and just it's going to bring people in from literally, I mean, all over the country. I mean, you have the Oklahoma City kayak, you know, but between Oklahoma City and the East Coast, really, this is the next spot. So, I mean, you can literally go across the country. I mean, the next one is in North Carolina, so. WOCA officials are planning for a formal grand opening next spring. You can go to visitwoka.com for more information. In Watts, Oklahoma, for Ozarks at Large, I'm Jack Travis. The Arkansas volleyball team will head into SEC action with a 10-2 record after sweeping all three matches in a tournament in Queens, New York this weekend. The number 17-ranked Razorbacks host South Carolina Friday night at 7 in Barnhill Arena. And the number 11 Arkansas soccer team now 5-2-1 after collecting a pair of wins this weekend. Friday night, Arkansas won at Tennessee. Yesterday, defeated Grand Canyon 3-2 in Fayetteville. Yesterday's match drew the third largest crowd in program history, more than 2,600 fans. Up next, Alabama at home Thursday night. The way the jury found the defendant Scotty Scott guilty of murder in the first degree and fixed his punishment at a term of 25 years in the penitentiary. Ooh, we're beginning with something that's uh, quite emotional this week, Randy Dixon, with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. That's right. We go back to the 80s uh, for a crime uh, story. This week, and uh, it involves, well, let's just go back. It's November of 1981. It's in Little Rock, and a convenience store clerk is murdered uh, in the process of a robbery. Um, a couple of days later, an Arkansas State Police uh, trooper's son, 22-year-old uh, Scotty Scott, was arrested and charged with the murder and the robbery. Uh, it was a big news story, of course, uh, the crime and the following uh, hearings and trials. Um, and so it received a lot of coverage. And the, the, the story itself turned into a saga, I guess you'd say, which lasted the full decade of, of the 80s. Uh, I probably went through 50 or 60 news stories wow. to compile all this, uh, all this from the KATV archives. And well, let's just start off uh, with the beginning. Uh, this was uh, Scotty Scott's uh, first court appearance. 
His arraignment and the reporter is Tanya Bean. 22-year-old Scotty Scott of Hensley was to be arraigned at 8.30 this morning, but at his father's request, Municipal Judge Alan Deshawn passed the case until Scott's attorney could get there. He was apparently tied up in proceedings in Chancery Court. Scott was arrested Saturday afternoon at his home by detectives based on information they received from a woman who arrived at the Magic Market and Golf Service Station on Scott Hamilton, apparently just moments after the store's manager was shot to death. Betty Thornton, a 45-year-old woman, was shot twice in the abdomen and once in the shoulder with a small caliber pistol Friday afternoon. A woman told police she saw a silver and blue sports car leaving the scene and that she found Miss Thornton face down behind the counter. Police say the cash drawer had been emptied. Police arrested Scott on the woman's description of the car and the man driving it. Scott has been charged with capital felony murder and aggravated robbery. He was the plea to the charge of capital felony murder. He's not guilty, Your Honor. What is the plea to the charge of aggravated robbery? Not guilty. The state intends to seek the death penalty on the murder charge, so Judge Deshaun did not set bond, but Scott will be held at least until the trial date can be set in circuit court. Tanya Bean, you've seen seven. All right, that's the arraignment. There was a first trial, correct? Right, that ended in a hung jury. So it was a mistrial, but he was tried again in May of 83. So two years later, uh, he's back in court. And, uh, well, here's the verdict from KETV's Randy Weber. The decision Scotty Scott had waited so long for was not the decision he had hoped to hear. After deliberating since 11.30 yesterday, the jury decided Scott was guilty of first-degree murder and aggravated robbery. Jury verdicts are as follows. The way the jury find the defendant Scotty Scott guilty of murder in the first degree and fix his punishment at a term of 25 years in the penitentiary. Signed Geneva Proctor Foreman. An emotional scene followed inside and outside the courtroom as friends and relatives of Scott Webb. His attorney, Jack Holt Jr., later told reporters he thought the jury was hung, which is what happened the first time Scott's case was tried. I'm really surprised, too, that a jury was out this long and came back with a verdict of guilty. I thought at the most it would perhaps be a, uh, what we call a hung jury. Holt said he would appeal the case for his client. Judge Lober Hendricks set the appeal bond for Scott at $50,000. Holt said his client would be able to make bond. Randy Weber, New Scene 7. So guilty, uh, looking at a long prison sentence. Yes, 25 years. And, uh, you know, they could have been the, the death penalty. That's mm -hmm. uh, what they were originally seeking, the prosecution. Uh, but it's not over. Far from over. Uh, let's enter... Henry Lee Lucas, which you probably know that name. The, yeah, he was a mass murderer, serial killer. Who yes. Kind of. Maybe one of the most notorious. Prolific, yeah. And would. Uh, this century. Didn't know any of the victims that of he. That century, yeah. He would kill. I mean, yeah. Well, he confessed, uh, you know, once he was on death row in Texas, he ended up confessing to hundreds. Right. Uh, of other murders, and uh, the Scotty Scott case was one of them. Here's KTV's Philip Bruce with the background on Lucas and just kind of brings us up to date. Henry Lee Lucas spent most of his life drifting from one town to another, and in a killing spree that spanned several states and 20 years, he claims to have murdered more than 150 people, all strangers in crimes that often had no motive. On two different occasions, Lucas reportedly confessed to the murder of Betty Thornton, 
a Little Rock convenience store clerk shot to death three years ago. 23-year-old Scotty Scott has already been convicted of that crime, but Scott's attorney, John Wesley Hall, believes Lucas's confession is basis for a new trial. Henry Lee Lucas confessed to the crime twice, once in November and then again in January. In the January, confession was on videotape taken by the Little Rock police, and Lucas describes the killing in such detail that he had to have been there and done it because he even identified the victim from a photograph, I hear. But the man who prosecuted Scott remains unconvinced by the so-called new evidence. Chris Piazza says Lucas was a thousand miles away when Mrs. Thornton was killed. We came to an absolute conclusion uh, through uh, documents that Mr. Lucas was in Florida on this day. All right, the challenge, if I recall, with the Henry Lee Lucas confessions is legally there were challenge just because somebody on death row who we know is horrible and has committed many murders but he's confessing to so many it was hard to prove his confessions and many of these confessions involved people who had been convicted or were charged in this case yes scotty scott and you know a lot of them were dismissed uh i think he had confessed at one point and they ignored it the texas Mm. Uh, officials, and uh, he did again. So there are some questions as to the validity of his claims, and I thought this was fairly unusual, but Judge Lober Hendricks, who had presided over the case where Scott was found guilty, uh, actually talked to KATV, and here's what he had to say about Lucas and his confession. Lucas, uh, obviously, is, has a warped man, and Apparently, he's trying to, quote, take credit for as many murders as he can. It's not difficult for him or anyone else to find out specifics of any particular crime. They can be supplied to him by someone, and certainly I'm not suggesting that someone has. I'm suggesting that someone can. His new attorney, uh, John Wesley Hall, uh, actually went down to Texas with a private investigator and interviewed Uh, Henry Lee Lucas, got his confession on videotape, and he shared that videotape with KATV's Deborah Mathis. This is kind of a long report, uh, but it really lays out um, all of the details and addresses a lot of the criticisms of Lucas's claims, and it's chilling to hear Lucas describe. Right. We'll hear Henry Lee Lucas here. Yes. All right. And this is, as you mentioned, it's a longer than usual cut that we have, but in its entirety here. Accompanying the petition was this videotaped interview with Lucas conducted two weeks ago by defense attorney John Hall and private investigator Gene Nobles. From the Williamstown County Jail in Georgetown, Texas, Lucas matter-of-factly confesses to the 1981 murder of convenience store clerk Betty Thornton. She had fell backwards in the, uh, in the floor. Where'd you shoot her? Well, I shot to hit her in the head, but uh, was the counter between the two of you? Yeah. I don't know exactly whether it hit her in the head or not. Was she bending over when you shot her? Uh, well, sort of, yeah, because she was trying to put the money in uh, in some kind of a box down there. Scotty Scott has maintained his innocence, though he admits that he was at the store around the time of the shooting. He says to make a phone call. As I was going out, uh, there was somebody, some colored guy walking towards the store. 
get the card of somebody on the telephone. I told them, I, they brought some pictures down, and I tried to take the guy out. Looked like the guy was on the phone. Sort of long haired guy. Had it back to you, though? Lucas says he voluntarily told Little Rock police and prosecutors about his involvement in the crime last November and insists he was unaware of Scott's conviction and had no knowledge of publicity in the case. And I've even told him, I said, you go back and you bring me a bunch of pictures of different service stations, mm -hmm. uh, every detail, you know, different places and all. Uh, and I'll point out the one that I've done. Well, did they, did they not show you a series of videotapes of different stations? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And mm -hmm. I told them which station it was. Did you pick out this one, did you? Yeah. Picked out the one that was. Did, did they, at that time, I can't recall, that's the reason why I'm asking, did they confirm that that was the station that the killing occurred in? When, when they showed you the videotape and you said this is the one, did they? I don't think you did. Uh, they've had, you know, they pointed out, they said, well, show us uh, where the girl was, describe mm -hmm. where the girl was, what she looked like, and stuff like that, which I did. And told them what she had shot with. Okay. But in other words, uh, just to make sure they understand those two points that people, in, in essence, without you realizing it, they've made two accusations against you. One, that you were just trying to grab, grab more glory for yourself, and you stated that's not true. Yeah. Okay, and the second one is, is that uh, it was kind of twofold. They said either someone unconsciously has told uh, Henry about the details or he's read about it in the news. I haven't read about it. I haven't seen it on television. I haven't uh, known nothing about it except just what I told them. All right, first of all, it's incredibly chilling to hear Henry Lee Lucas. Yes. But our, for our purposes here, the, what we're remembering, what we're recounting this week for the Prior Center Profile, this isn't over. No. It takes another weird turn. Yes. Um, as he did with many of his other confessions, Henry Lee Lucas recanted. And so— But we have this interview on right. videotape. Right. Yeah. So that brought up enough— uh, questions that a they did allow a hearing um, in front of Judge Annabelle Clinton uh, for a new trial. And here's what Annabelle Clinton ruled. This court is of the opinion that a different verdict might have resulted if the Lucas testimony had been introduced at the trial of Scotty Scott. Therefore, the petition for writ of error quorum nobis will be granted and a new trial date will be set by mail. The court at this time declines to comment on specific evidence because to do so would be improper and inappropriate pending a new trial. Okay, so yet another trial. And Deborah Mathis was able to catch Scotty Scott out in the hallway, and this was uh, the only interview I know of with him. Look, I know you've been nervous till now. It must feel good, Still though, nervous. doesn't it? Yes, it does. Okay, what did you expect to happen? I didn't know. How did you feel when she said, I mean, you knew what she was going to say just seconds before she actually no, I didn't. said it's granted, didn't you? No, I didn't. And it was all, all a surprise to you? All a surprise. Yeah. All right, so the first trial was in 81? Yes, Second mistrial. Mistrial, right. Second trial, the eighty-three. Now, when's the third trial? Well, it doesn't come along until eighty-nine, because Scotty Scott was having 
some major health problems. I'm not sure exactly what they were, but it was preventing him to go on trial. He's about 30 by now, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and in going through the video, you could tell a difference in his appearance. Mm. So I'm not sure uh, what ailment uh, he was suffering, but uh, it did alter his appearance. Uh, so now we have this new trial in 89. Now, the the linchpin evidence for the state was uh, eyewitness testimony from a gentleman by the name of Otis Grundy. Okay. Uh, he was um, a customer who came in to the convenience store and said he was greeted at the counter by a white male. Uh, of course, the, the actual clerk uh, was female. Mm-hmm. And uh, he took the man's money for gas, and he's the one who identified Scotty Scott as the person that he saw there in the convenience store. So um, here's a report from Tara Bloom on this next trial. For the fifth time in eight years, Otis Grundy testified in court about his encounter with defendant Scotty Scott at a Little Rock gas station in November 1981. Grundy's testimony is crucial in proving Scott's guilt. Around the time convenience store clerk Betty Thornton was shot to death, Grundy arrived at the store to buy gas. When I first uh, pulled into the service station, he was standing behind the counter and then from behind the counter. And so I went over to the pumps, and then from there, when I was getting ready to walk in to pay for gas, he met me at the door. Grundy later identified Scott as the man at the store through a police lineup and police photos. Scott's attorney, John Wesley Hall, attempted to chip away at Grundy's reliability as an eyewitness. A psychology professor, who is an expert in eyewitness testimony, took the stand for the defense. He told jurors many factors, including the way police question an eyewitness, could affect or change the memory of that eyewitness and make it unreliable. Scott's father also took the stand, saying his son has always proclaimed innocence. I looked him right straight in the eye. I said, son, did you ever go into that store? He looked me right back and he said, Dad, I never lied to you in my life, and I'm not lying now. I've never been in that store in my life. I know it, and God knows it. To further cloud the state's case, jurors learned from investigators that Scott was one of four suspects in Thornton's death. One of those suspects was a business associate of Thornton who disappeared after her murder and has never been located by police for questioning. Tara Bloom, Channel 7 News. Okay, but this this no longer new attorney, but the second attorney, John Wesley Hall, yes. brings something up. Well... This, yeah, this took quite a turn, and um, Otis Grundy said that he stood and looked eye-to-eye with the man behind the counter and gave him his money. Well, Wesley Hall pointed out that there was a nine-inch platform behind the counter, and he pointed out that uh, Otis Grundy and Scotty Scott are the same height. So nine inches. He would be nine inches taller than the witness, and so he couldn't have looked mm-hmm. eye to eye with him, and, and it completely uh, caused that, you know, evidence, eyewitness testimony to really fall apart. Because nine inches is a significant 
amount of height difference. Yes. You can't yes. look at something eye to eye if it's nine inches higher. Yeah. yeah. So, bottom line, on May 12, 1989, Scotty Scott was found not guilty of all charges and was a free man. Wow. Now, I don't have that to play for you. You don't have the the, the, the actual verdict. So I go through 50 or 60 stories uh-huh. and I'm gathering all of all of this uh, all these reports and interviews and I get to the very last one yeah. which is the verdict of not guilty and the tape is missing. The edit master really tape and you know it that could have happened 20 years ago, you just out happened? of 26,000 tapes, huh. one or two or a few dozen are going to get lost. Sure. And this was one of the ones. Wow. I know. So that's one flaw with, and sure. it's the human error right. factor of, of an archive. But, um, well, what do we know? Okay. So Henry Lee Lucas was executed in Texas. Yes. He had confessed, then recanted. Uh, Scotty Scott, we now know, was innocent. I tried to find him. I don't know where he is. And considering he was having serious right. health problems in 89, um, I don't know. Um, but has the case ever been solved? No. To your knowledge? Yeah. No. And uh, John Wesley Hall was in court all week, so I didn't get a chance to talk to him. And I talked to Chris Piazza, the original prosecutor. Well, He's retired as a judge, and that's the last thing he probably wants yeah. to do in his retirement is have to pull files and go through old right. cases. But uh, it's um, it, it was an interesting decade in, in Arkansas crime news. Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Randy, thanks for coming in. Thank you. I'll see you next week. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. A bill to make changes to the Arkansas Freedom of Information Act was signed into law by Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders last week. But as Little Rock Public Radio's Josie Lenora reports, the final bill isn't what the governor initially had in mind. In a surprise announcement, Governor Sanders called a special session of the Arkansas legislature, giving lawmakers and the public just three days notice. On the agenda was a bill to roll back the Arkansas Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA. The state law has been mostly unchanged since it was signed in 1967 and remains one of the strongest in the country. Broadly speaking, FOIA allows Arkansas residents to access almost any record of government business. Sanders said she received several death threats throughout her political career, and information about her personal security shouldn't be accessible to the public. Our current FOIA laws put me and my kids at risk, so we will update sections of the law so that the sources and methods Arkansas State Police uses to protect me and my family outside of the governor's mansion are not subject to disclosure. But the initial draft of the bill to alter FOIA was far more broad than just exempting the governor's security information. The bill would have also shielded the public from knowing about the internal communications of most state employees. For example, it would have been nearly impossible to find out which lobbyists are contacting a politician or if a lawmaker was going for expensive dinners with donors. In Arkansas, if someone successfully sues for a public document, the state has to recoup the cost. The initial draft of the bill would have gutted this mechanism, limiting Arkansans' ability to pay for FOIA lawsuits. All of this came after attorney and blogger Matt Campbell sued the Arkansas State Police for access to the governor's travel records. Although she didn't mention Campbell by name, Sanders said legislation was needed due to people, quote, weaponizing FOIA. 
Campbell said he was flummoxed by the allegation that asking for past flight information would harm the governor's security. I don't have a time machine, so I'm not going to nobody's going to go back and, you know, catch one of these flights in action. And unless she's somehow worried about somebody, I guess, having like a surface to air missile to shoot down her plane, I don't see how knowing who was on a plane in the past could put anybody's life in danger. But Sanders says this information allows the public to access security patterns. They know you travel with two people versus four people or six people and you take this route versus this one or you fly specifically on this airline versus another one. You're revealing the way in which they do their job. No bill had been submitted by the first day of the special session. Sanders spent that day trying to gin up support for a draft bill, which faced bipartisan opposition. The legislature's FOIA task force came out against the proposed bill, as did many local Republican groups. Despite the pushback, Republican Senate President Bart Hester spent the week championing the governor's FOIA bills in the legislature. On Monday night, he announced his intention to hold public comment over a bill that did not yet exist. I hope by six o'clock we have a FOIA bill that will read across the desk and go to state agencies. Public commenters gathered in the committee room to speak on the bill at 6 p.m., but an hour later, Hester said the meeting would not happen. A bill was eventually filed just before 10 o'clock that night, this time leaving out the exemptions for all state employees and politicians and focusing instead on governor's communications with members of her cabinet. In committee, Hester said he had lost the argument with his colleagues over the more wide-reaching version of the bill, but still supported preventing the public from seeing the governor's communications with her cabinet secretaries. People of Arkansas, we want our government to work efficiently and fairly. And when we do not have the ability for the free exchange of ideas, uh, it hurts in the efficiency. Republican attorney Clint Lancaster said he would rather have a transparent government than an efficient government. What I do think is important is knowing who the governor is associating with when she's traveling. Um, I think that if she's on a plane to Europe with Ron DeSantis, I'd like to know that. Public comment was mostly negative, with criticism lodged by Democrats and Republicans. Eventually, on Wednesday, two identical bills appeared in the House and Senate committee. They only included FOIA exemptions pertaining to the governor's security, which could include travel records. One of the few voices of opposition was Fayetteville Democratic Representative Nicole Clowney. My concern is that a governor could travel around with some big donor on the Arkansas State Police plane on the taxpayer's dime, and taxpayers would never know. The two bills passed quickly and were signed into law by Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders the next day. When asked about the previous versions of the law, she gave this response. That's part of governing. You come in, we got exactly what we really needed that is critical, and we're not going to continue or not going to stop continuing to fight for more government efficiency and effectiveness. And I think this is just the beginning of that process. In Little Rock, I'm Josie Lenora. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, a new child development center has opened at the University of Arkansas Fort Smith, bucking a trend of campus child center closures due to costs. Listen tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. right here on KUAF. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Casey Bill Weldon is one of the forgotten men of the commercial development of the blues. William Weldon was born July 10, 1909 in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. As my baby woke me one morning At a clock was Weldon was a member of the influential Memphis Jug Band and recorded with that group in 1927 before recording solo in the mid-1930s. The March 1935 song heard here, called As the Clock Struck Four, also features P.D. Wheatstraw 
of Cotton Plant in Woodruff County on piano. In 1936, Weldon recorded I'm Gonna Move to the Outskirts of Town. The songs form as age-old 12-bar blues, but addressed modern times with its references to getting a refrigerator to replace the Iceman. In November 1941, Brinkley, Arkansas-born R&B pioneer Louis Jordan also had his first real hit with this song. Jordan biographer John Chilton said the song really launched Louis Jordan as a major recording star. I'm gonna move way out on the outskirts of town. I'm gonna move way out on the outskirts of town. I don't want nobody ooh, always hanging around. In fact, Louis Jordan's version of fellow Arkansas-er Casey Bill Weldon's song, I'm Gonna Move to the Outskirts of Town, was such a success for Jordan, he recorded his own answer song in 1942 with new lyrics, but still sharing royalties with Weldon. It was called, I'm Gonna Leave You on the Outskirts of Town. I cut out my ice man, I bought me a Frigidaire, now you're letting the service man take you everywhere. I'm gonna leave you, baby, right out here on the outskirts of town. Louis Jordan and the Timpany Five also had a big hit with a third Casey Bill Weldon song called Somebody Done Changed the Lock on My Door. Jordan recorded it in 1945. Others like Winoni Harris and Tar Heel Slim would follow. Weldon's version was originally cut in October 1935. Well, well, she changed her bed around. She even changed her stove. She changed the carpet on the floor. But that cheese that hurt me. She changed that lock on that door. Because the key I got, woo, well, well, won't fit that lock no more. Casey Bill Weldon's varied talents on guitar have caused some music researchers to suggest he is more than one person. Some also say he was married to blues woman Memphis Minnie, who is known to rock and roll fans as author of Led Zeppelin's When the Levee Breaks. Weldon appeared as a sideman with Memphis Minnie and as a member of the Hokum Boys and the Washboard Rhythm Kings, also featuring Washboard Sam of Walnut Ridge, Arkansas. Here's the Washboard Rhythm Kings from November 1935 with Please Come On Down to My House with Arkansas's Washboard Sam and Casey Bill Weldon. Please come down to my house, baby. Nobody on the street. I've been watching you my three months. You look good to me. Papa gonna buy you a Coca-Cola and you let the Cleveland bees on your bath graffinola. Please come down to my house, please, Nobody home, good. Nobody home, good. Information on the life of Casey Bill Weldon is shadowy, but his contributions to the blues are not. The Pine Bluff native is featured on more than 100 recordings as a solo artist on influential bands and as a sideman for the likes of Memphis Minnie. Weldon's skills as a lyricist have kept several of his songs alive as blues standards, even as the name Casey Bill Weldon fades. Now, with Black Bob on piano, here in its entirety is Casey Bill Weldon's Blues Everywhere I Go, 
recorded in April 1936. Jefferson County native Casey Bill Weldon with Blues Everywhere I Go from April 1936. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Arkansas is underwritten by Arkansas Heritage. Relive your favorite Barton Coliseum concert memories at the Old State House Museum in downtown Little Rock where they still play it loud. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bella Vista, and Pettigrew. Pettigrew? Pettigrew. Pettigrew. Making sure it wasn't Pettigrew. Well, that depends where you grew up, I suppose. Yes. Pettigrew. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth, Jacqueline Froelich, Jack Travis, Randy Dixon, Josie Lenora, and Stephen Cook. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Matthew produced today's program in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2 at KUAF. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Hey, uh, Friday, KUAR, Little Rock Public Radio announced that Ozarks at Large will start airing Monday through Friday, 7 p.m. on October 2nd. In central Arkansas. It's really exciting. Glad we're going to be able to have uh, some new listeners, some new folks uh, checking us out. I'm looking forward to it. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College, one of 40 schools featured in Colleges That Changed Lives by author Lauren Pope. Hendricks is nationally recognized among private liberal arts colleges for academic quality, engaged learning, and value. Hendricks.edu slash connect for more.